This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Knicks fans, uh, thank you for joining us for another episode of the Knicks Film School podcast. Um, I am beyond honored uh, to have on the podcast for the first time. Um, I it would take me longer than the actual pod to go through uh, his um, it, just incredible resume. He is currently contributing editor at Vanity Fair. You've seen him in Esquire, GQ, Grantland, Wired, uh, The Atlantic, New York Magazine, and a whole lot of other publications. Um, he really is one of the best writers around, and that is Alex French. Alex, uh, thank you so much for being willing to join us for a few minutes today. How are you? I'm, I'm well. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so if you're listening to this at home and you're wondering, well, why does Macri have uh, this esteemed writer on a podcast that talks mostly about Knicks basketball? It is because uh, 13 years ago uh, last week, I guess, uh, Alex French wrote uh, what is, I think, still inarguably the definitive um, William Wesley piece that exists. Um, and it was quite a story for GQ magazine. Um, and he's going to talk a little bit about it today. So first and foremost, I guess, does it, does it seem like 13 years ago or has, uh, has time flown since then? It feels like so much longer. Really? It feels okay. like, I mean, I feel like I've sort of, um, you know, I'm 42 now. I think I was 29 when it was assigned. Uh, or 28. Uh, and I worked for, I think, gosh, six or seven months reporting really hard on that story. Yeah. It feels like it was 20 years ago. It really does. Um, you know, I, I feel like, you know, I read through the story again after you reached out, um, and asked me to come on. And it's funny. It's like some of the names in there, Rick Brunson and Marty Collins, and, <laughs> you know, Aaron Goodwin and Eddie Curry and, you know, uh, it just feels like, um, I mean, it was like two NBAs ago, you know, it was like, uh, yeah, just if it, it, it's weird. Yeah. Just, it feels like a long, long time ago. Well, and, and it's funny because you could argue that the two, mo well, the three most prominent figures in the story, um, are obviously worldwide West himself and then LeBron James and Leon Rose. And well, a lot of the other names that are in the piece, you know, have kind of cycled through those three, um, you know, remain, you know, perhaps now as prominently as ever. Um, so I, I read a little bit about the backstory and uh, I guess you had been shown an investigation or been made aware of an investigation by True Hoop magazine. And that kind of got you intrigued in doing it. Um, it. It feels like there has to be more to it than that for you to put in, you know, as you said, six months. I know you did something like 150 to 200 interviews uh, for this piece. So what got you inspired to dig into a man that, you know, quite clearly did not want to be dug into? Um, that's a great question. I had always wanted to be a writer specifically as sort of, uh, a, you know, a, a long form journalist since, you know, eighth grade or, you know, freshman or sophomore year in high school. Um, and the idea had always been what I had always wanted to do, the, the kind of career project I wanted to undertake um, was investigating um, conflicts within little subcultures, like little American subcultures, little worlds that we often overlook or misunderstand. Okay. And because I, I think that 
in, you know, something like the NBA is a great, a great example of, you know, sort of these, you know, closed secret societies that we all have some sort of preliminary awareness of or understanding or, or think we have an understanding of, but we don't really understand how the universe operates. The NBA, I think, is a great example because um, the power is pretty diversely spread about or sort of um, pretty d- d- disparate, you know? It's, sure, yeah. There, there's pockets of power and influence in different places, and there's a ton of money at stake. Um, and, um, you know, so I think I'd had a friend who pointed me in the direction of like a Boston sports guy, AKA Bill Simmons mention of this guy who Simmons described as like the Mr. Wolf of the NBA. That sounds, that that sounds accurate. Yeah. It got me sort of interested. And then I started reading, you mentioned true hoop. Um, the writer there, his name is Henry Abbott and he's phenomenal. Yes. Um, he did great work in sort of like, you know, putting down like the bones of the house. Um, and, my situation was, you know, I was 28 or 29. I really wanted to be a journalist. I had just gotten this um, job as a freelance researcher uh, at GQ magazine. And my boss said to me, like, I understand you want to write, but I don't want you to pitch anything to the editors here for six months. Like understand, get to understand the magazine, get to understand who the personalities are, you know, like you've got to, you've got to wait your turn before you can pitch a story. So what I did was I worked on a pitch about worldwide West for six months um, <laughs> wow. and like on, on my six month anniversary, brought it down the hall to this editor named Joel Lovell uh, and we handed it to him and said, like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> what was his reaction? Um, I, uh, he was like an NBA fan. Okay. I mean, like, it, you know, it, and I, and I don't think Joel knew who West was at the time, but you know, like, you know, like we would, I would like, we would like DVA like, or uh, DVR, I'm sorry. We would DVR uh, like NBA games. And I'd say, I'd say to him, okay, like you can see Wes under the hoop at like such and such timestamp, you know, and it would sort sure. of like, it became a thing where we would sort of like try to try to map where we would see Wes. Um, and so um, that started this sort of very intense seven months, eight month period of six foot seven, eight month period, um, whatever it was of reporting. Um, at the time I worked in a, uh, an unventilated storage closet, um, (laughs) with two other, with two other researchers and two, and two, um, two copy editors, uh, all in the storage closet, (laughs) all in the storage closet. I made all these, all these, I mean, hundreds of calls, I, I called I called anybody who basically ever had anything to do with the NBA. Oh my goodness! Um, to see what they knew about this guy, I went to a, I went to a lot of Knicks games and hung out in like, you know, like the the hallway, behind, you know, like in the in the tunnel to try to talk to people. Like I'd go to, you know, I'd go to like the Heat game, you know, Knicks Heat game to talk to Shaq and Gary Payton, just about Wes, right? So like this investigation sort of started like grassroots with phone calls and trips to Knicks games. And then gosh, after I think it got assigned in like uh, fall and then around winter time, November, December, I started making trips. Um, and what I wanted to try to do was sort of like figure out when either the cabs because of LeBron or the Detroit Pistons because of uh, Richard Hamilton, okay. who was very close to West. I figured that's when I might catch West was like, if they had a string of three home games in a row, that felt like a good time to try to like go. And also West lived in Broomfield Hills. Um, which so is yeah, in Cleveland, so correct? Basically, no, no. Which is outside of Detroit. Outside of, um, okay, I knew he lived. You had mentioned in the story he lived in Cleveland when LeBron was first coming yeah, in, but by that point, I guess he had moved. Right. I think he'd rented a, a an apartment across the hallway from LeBron's. <laughs> that, um, that is in your story, yes. And I, um, yeah, I just started trying to like track him around to just approach him um, and talk to him, and yeah, the, the sort of like 
early conversations between the two of us uh, didn't go well. You well, know, like you describe one in the, the piece that is almost you can't you can't write this stuff. It's um, well, why don't you describe it? <laughs> I, I mean, you know, I mean, what I remember correctly is, you know, I approached him in Cleveland. I actually staked him out. I sat at the bar in the four seasons for like hours at a time, two days in a row with hopes of like seeing him on his way to the elevator. Um, and that didn't work. So basically like I just decided to walk up to him. Um, and you know, like I, it was just tense. Like he stuck a, you know, he basically stuck his finger in my chest and said, I know you've been calling around. I know you've been asking a lot of questions you you better get the story right you know like the minute you write one wrong thing dot 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 like you never finish the sentence you know like believe what you know i don't i don't know what came after that so you know i, I mean of course like you always want to get things right you always want to be fair to the people that you write about um you know that was that that became part of my pitch to, to sources was Hey, you know, I'm writing about this guy who seems to be really powerful. Um, there's a lot of information out there. Uh, I'm just trying to like get this right. Can you, you know, can you help me, you know, can you help me with some facts? How did you meet this guy? You know, where does he come from? Um, and, and what I found really was that like, Wes is this really bright guy. And he really is now, I mean, now I think that he's been hired by the Knicks. And, and I think I made mention of this in the story. I think he's really kind of this incredible American dream story, right? Like he's a kid who grows up in a middle-class neighborhood uh, in Camden, New Jersey, and he has hardworking parents uh, and he's a hardworking kid who's, uh, you know, he gets a job at a sneaker store uh, in, uh, in Cherry Hill called Pro Shoes. Uh, where all of the um, sort of all the local athletes bought sneakers. So he sort of starts meeting. Oh, go ahead. I, I was going to ask you about that because one of the things I was wondering, and obviously you mentioned the store in the, in the story, it almost seems too coincidental that he would get a, a job. It, 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 like the way it comes off, it's like, it sounds quaint. Like, oh, he got this job at the sneaker store and then happened to meet all these folks. But then you read the rest of the piece and it's so clear that he is such an expert at putting himself in the right place at the right time around the right people. And I almost wonder you know, I don't know how much you knew, found out about this, but like when he was all the way back then at 16, did he know exactly what he was doing even back then to get that job in that location where all those people shopped? Yeah, you know, I think he did. You know, I remember hearing this. He went to Penn Sock in high school. And I remember hearing the story about when and they had, you know, like Milt Thompson or Milt Wagner and uh Bobby Thompson, was that his name? Uh, yeah, um, I, yes. It was, I've got to double check it right now. I have your story up, but I believe so. Yeah, we're, we're played, you know, played at West's High School. Billy Thompson, sorry. and Billy Thompson, yeah. So they had Milt Wagner and Billy Thompson on the Pensacola High School um, basketball team. And West would be the guy who, like, greeted college coaches. And, you know, like, Larry, that, you know, that was where he made his, his first entree with, John Calipari and Larry Brown was Calipari was Larry Brown's assistant and they'd go to the gym to recruit, you know, local players and they would meet Wes. And yeah, like Wes is this kind of enterprising, really bright, really, you know, a, a person who understands how like the gears of the universe, you know, all work together. And I think at a very young age, he had this understanding that like this, this world of basketball, this world of professional sports, the, the world in general, the world at large is all about relationships. And he was just really, really good at it. Um, and, uh, you know, from at, at pro shoes, he made a lot of connections, but I think really like Milt Wagner was the most important relationship he had. Um, I think Milt went to Louisville and won an NCAA championship. And then he went to, Los Angeles to play with the, you know, the Lakers and West was there and he, began, and he's a person who he meets people, you know, and he pays attention. You know, he, 
every everybody i i think he's a wes is a a guy who everybody he meets is important to him in the in the in the sense that like every everybody he meets in some way can maybe be useful right sure you're a barber you make custom suits you own a car dealership you know like you're an interior designer whatever whatever you know, like whatever your profession is, you, there's maybe a role for you in Wes's universe. He just, he just hasn't figured that out yet. You set up this like fascinating dichotomy where on one hand you make it a point and, and you emphasize it in the story that everybody you talked to said the same thing. He never asked me for anything. So on one hand, he's not someone that gives off any kind of an aura of I'm in it for me. But at the same time, he has this, you know, I don't know, this, you know, Gatsby-esque uh, aura, like he knows everybody, he can help anybody, you know, it's a larger than life thing. Um, it, it, I, I guess I, how can he continue, he's, cause, and it's continued because much of the same things are said about him now. Um, how do you think he was able to kind of pull this off as being, everybody's friend and able to get things for people. But at the same time, nobody feels like he ever wants anything from them. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating duality here. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a couple things that work. I, I think the, 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 the dual, I think there's, so yeah, that duality exists for sure. And I think there's a tension to it, right? Like whenever I would talk to somebody about worldwide West post story, a friend or, you know, another journalist, whatever, there was always this assumption because of the, you know, the sort of the, the world of amateur basketball is um, shady and shadowy for sure. Um, you know, you're constantly hearing stories about big speaker companies committing, you know, in, infractions with the NCAA. Like people think that like, of course, like West is, somehow like greasing the wheel and getting rich off of this. And, you know, there's, it, it you know, it, people seem to sort of feel like there is a, an inherent corruption to what he does. And I don't think that's the case. Like, I don't like when Wes and I sort of after the fact got together and talked, he told me that the reporting I did around him was more complete than what the secret service had done around him <laughs> when he went to stay at the white house, when Bill Clinton was there. And I, 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 think, quite a what, I, think what the, <laughs> I know I it always made me blush a little. And I, and I think what that play number one is like, I think Wes is a, a genuine interest, you know, his dad, God, there's a, the backstory around his, his family is really fascinating. It, his dad was this sort of small business owner in a time when it was, you know, hard for African-Americans to like own healthy, sustainable businesses and had been, you know, sort of a recipient of a, a, a grant or a loan or something that had been tremendously helpful. And John, like, you don't need to use this part, but I'll get to my point. <laughs> no, this is yeah, great. I think that, I think that I think that West had this sort of inherent interest in seeing young black men coming into the NBA who were being pulled in a million different directions and taking those young guys under his wing and saying, Hey, your time is limited. We don't, we don't know how long you're going to be here. So let's help you maximize your value and your earning potential while you're here. And when you put it to that, you know, like when you put it that way, Wes's success becomes self-perpetuating, right? Like in a way, like he's doing the right thing. And so people, players want him around. He's, he's always feel like he's every time I talk to a player, never heard a player say a bad thing about it. You know, like I certainly heard stories about, you know, like agents of prominent players not wanting him around, like, their players during Olympic practices or whatever, but you never heard, I never heard players say, Oh, you know, he's shady. Cause I don't, I don't think he is. I, I think West figured out a way to, to do good and to be helpful and useful. And he parlayed that into 
a system in his career that allowed him to work for everybody, right? Like he could work for he could work for the Knicks. He could work for Dave, you know, uh, David Stern. He could work for Michael Jordan. He could work for LeBron, you know. And you know, I I I think his he became so good at that the the real you know his sort of his relationships became so sort of like rich that you know the next step was see was you know like CAA and then and now you see like the front office of the New York Knicks. Yeah, and and you and you you know you mentioned LeBron James and you mentioned you know the conversation you write about the conversation you had uh, with LeBron about Wes and he said he was a role model to him and but he also didn't want to go too deep into it and it you know it's Le- LeBron is a guy who now we know even more than we did back then does not let many people into his inner circle and it's even more interesting that since the piece obviously came out, Wes went to CAA and then LeBron left CAA. Um, and yet they're still close. So it, it makes perfect sense what you're saying about guys just have a sense that he has their best interest in his heart and there is no ulterior motive. So that's, you know, it's, that's fascinating to consider. I mean, I've always wondered, you know, like with LeBron and, you know, like LeBron came out with, you know, Maverick, Maverick and Rich Paul. And I've always, you know, I've never, I've never had it like on good authority. Um, and you know, I, I mean, again, this was 13 years ago. Um, and you know, LeBron was still new to the league, pretty new to the league. And, you know, I think Rich Paul and Maverick who are, you know, sort of, uh, dynamo, you know, dynamos in the business world. Now we're still getting their feet yet wet, but I'd imagine that, you know, Wes's interests in LeBron wasn't limited to LeBron that there was, um, an interest in, you know, putting Maverick and rich sort of on the right, on the right path Hmm. in that sense too. You know, I mean, the best stories that you hear about Wes always involve like Warren Buffett, you know, like, (laughs) That's right. Like, that is not the name you know I expected I mean? like, to hear you say, but please pr- yeah, proceed. No, it, they do. I mean, it's like, I remember one night watching a Cavs game and like, so I figured out like Wes has cap seats or he used to have cab seats when LeBron was there. And so every night that there was a Cavs game on, I'd sort of like tune in with interest to see like who's sitting in Wes's seat. Like is Wes there or, you know, like, and sure enough, like one night, Warren Buffett's in his seat, you know, and, you know, like, and then you start hearing these sort of stories about, you know, LeBron meeting with like Warren Buffett and like learning about business and investing, you know, and I like, I know where that relationship came from, you know, like you, it's pretty, he's, I think he is just a person at that point in his career. And he probably still is who's sort of talent and, sort of, you know, modus operandi was putting people in the right place to meet people that were going to help them advance. And, you know, like, uh, that benefits, you know, that, of course, like, it benefits West too. You know, I, I mean, I think, I think if he was a guy who was skimming money or, uh, you know, wasn't acting in the best interests of the players or the organizations or the shoe companies or, you know, the, or USA basketball, they wouldn't have kept him around. You know, I mean, I think his longevity um, speaks to, you know, the quality of his, character and the quality of his work. Well, it even makes sense because, you know, you tell the story um, in the piece of, uh, a, interestingly enough, now his his co-worker, Scott Perry, who's the, who's the current GM of the Knicks, at the time he was a pro- player personnel um, uh, person with the Detroit Pistons, and, you know, Wes sets up or m- makes a phone call to uh, Scott Perry, and it's with uh, Leandro Barbosa, who at the time was a 
relatively unknown prospect from Brazil and obviously has had a very nice NBA career since then. But that's an instance where it was so clear that Barbosa got a lot of, I mean, talk about getting something out of an evening. He got to talk to Jay-Z and, um, you know, heard Michael Jordan's voicemail. But at the same time, a guy like Scott Perry gets to, you know, maybe get the first in with the player there. And you could just kind of, and, and that's why I guess the, the most fascinating part to me isn't necessarily how he's perpetuated these relationships, but how, you know, he, you know, and you even, you write in the piece and you kind of gloss over it, how his big break came in the late eighties, early nineties, when Wil- Milt Wagner put him in the room with Michael Jordan and Jordan ended up giving a job. Well, I'm sure Michael Jordan was in a room with a lot of people over the course of his life. He didn't give all of them jobs. There's something about Wes that just um, seems to resonate with people. And I think that's what make him, makes him such a fascinating figure. I think it's also his discretion. He's not like, you know, like, listen, when I wrote the story, I was green as hell, right? First, first national magazine story, like right out of the box doing something like that, you know, like, okay. Like it happened because I was like naive and didn't understand what I was biting off and like, you know, but like Wes is discreet as hell. He is, you know, like he didn't, he would say to me that he didn't want his name on, you know, his name and his picture in the magazine. Um, you know, asking the question of like, is the most powerful, is this the most powerful man in sports? And whether or not, I mean, I'm sure that was good for business for him, but like previous to that, he had really, really worked to stay out of story. You know, like I talked to Lacey Banks, who has passed away a couple of years ago, but he was this kind of legendary Chicago um, basketball beat writer. I think he was the guy who was famous for playing ping pong with Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah, that sounds uh, about right. Had this, this, uh, like really close relationship with Jordan and the Bulls. And, you know, like Wes, you know, Wes was the guy that Lacey would turn to when he couldn't get an interview, you know? And, you know, I think part of the arrangement was like Lacey could lean on Wes because Lacey wasn't going to write about Wes. Um, huh. Interesting. Yeah. You know, um, He's just, I mean, I think one of the things he, he is just discreet, you know, he, you know, like being below the radar, you know, really, really benefited him in that way. And, you know, you, so it's a good time to bring up, um, Leon Rose, who you mentioned throughout the piece and you, you know, you don't come right out and say it, but I, you, it's strongly insinuated insinuated shall we say that um you know to anybody who thinks that like leon rose made west no 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 it and, and you have obviously that fantastic david falk uh quote in the story um saying that you know leon rose doesn't have clout um west has clout and it's it's interesting that you know you talk about being behind the scenes because I almost wonder, especially now that Leon Rose is the president and sure enough, you know, Wes is technically his subordinate with the Knicks, but it almost is like Leon Rose, you know, is the front man and that Wes can kind of still operate in, in the shadows. What what impression did you get of that relationship after writing the piece and, and of just, you know, Leon Rose in general? I mean, this was the I, this was pretty I mean, Leon Rose went from like, oh, you know, have like repping like a whole bunch of guys that were like seventh and eighth man, eighth man on the bench to like the hottest agent in basketball in like a year. You know, I, I mean, it was crazy. It was crazy. His, his ascent was crazy. And yeah, the, I mean, I think the presumption that everybody made, maybe rightly so, was that, you know, like West was, West was lifting him up. Certainly all of the, all of the, all of the young men that were on, um, you know, all of the stars that were on Leon Rose's client list were like, you know, nephews to Uncle Wes. You know, I, I, I can't speak really to like what the dynamic in that front office is. Like I never, 
all of my attempts to talk to Leon Rose failed. He wouldn't, he wouldn't speak to me. Oh, interesting. Um, I was going to ask you that because it didn't seem like you got through. Yeah, to him. no, he never, no, he never spoke to me. Um, you know, in my, in all of my interactions with Wes, um, you know, he, he never, he wouldn't talk about Leon. I mean, there was a lot of speculation about what, you know, like I remember hearing a lot of speculation about, you know, what the arrangement might've been between the two of them. I was never able to nail it down. You know, I mean, whether there was, you know, like LeBron brings Richard Hamilton and gets a, you know, sort of a, a finder's fee or, or, or whatever. I, I have no idea. I was never able to, to nail that down. Um, but, you know, like, again, Leon Rose has now been, you know, via CAA and, um, and the Knicks at this a long time. You know, like, I don't, I don't think people who can't stand up on their own Get in that get in that position. You talk about the Knicks a couple times in the story, and you tell um, a, something that is still painful for Knicks fans many years later about how they drafted somebody that um, uh, Ronaldo Bachman, who uh, I, politely speaking uh, was was not pegged to be taken where uh, he was, and sure enough, he was a CAA client. Um, and you know, you you mentioned before you hung out at a lot of Knicks games. Did you? get any sense when you were reporting uh, the story back then that you know Wes's ties to the Knicks were maybe more than they were uh to other teams no i don't know i mean i think i think a lot of it was in the in the run up to lebron's free agency um I mean, I think that that was the, the that was the contract. LeBron had like a rookie contract, and then they, and then he resigned an extension for like three years. Yes, that's correct. And then he became a free agent, and then and then we had the decision. Does that does that, that kind of sound right? Yes, that is exactly correct. Yeah. So I, that that teams the, the Knicks principally were doing basically anything that they could to curry favor with LeBron and LeBron and and sort of like Team LeBron and the Knicks, I, I don't know. I don't know who in the universe imagined that, you know, the Knicks were going to come car, curry favor by drafting those guys, but it, <laughs> but it happened and it was insane and ridiculous. Yeah. And, um, I don't know whether, it, you know, looking back on it now, I don't know whether that move spoke to LeBron star power, certainly. Um, or, I don't know, like, like, what do you, like, what do you think? What do you think you can learn from that, like, that fact pattern, right? Like, Ronaldo Balkman's like maybe a guy who would be like an un, an undrafted free agent signing, I, right? I, I think I, like, I think I could learn what you, the two words that you just used, insane and ridiculous, um, you know, applied to many decisions the franchise has made over the last right, right, twenty right. years. But, 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 so you know, like, what does it say about the Knicks? What does it say? And what does it say about Leon Rose? Sure, right? yeah. that that, you know, front office officials with the, you know, with the Knicks thought that they could, you know, you know, thought that they could curry favor, you know, with the Knicks or, or the Knicks thought that they could curry favor with Leon Rose by picking up these two kids from Temple, you know, like, you know, I don't know, like, and I don't know if that was, I mean, obviously it was a, grievous miscalculation it, um, it would seem so yes <laughs> i would love to see like one of those quick bait items on like all of the players that were drafted after ronaldo balkman and what their nba careers have been like you know like who went right after him it, that would be um, that would be ray john rondo who went on to uh win a championship with the boston celtics and have uh not quite a hall of fame nba career but made a, a nice name one. for himself yeah, yeah. still in the league you know, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think that, you know, 13 years on, 15 years on, there are probably a lot of situations where, you know, Wes's fingerprints are on things or Leon Rose's fingerprints are on things and you can sort of, you know, deconstruct, a, you know, or, or construct a sort of a fact pattern and, and try to figure out what, 
you know, like what is the perception of Leon Rose made by, uh, you know, what is the perception that the Knicks have of Leon Rose? What does it say about Leon Rose that the Knicks think that they can draft these two guys who don't belong in those draft spots, that they think that that is the thing that's going to bring LeBron to the Knicks? Like, I, I just... It, did, it didn't make any sense then. It doesn't make much sense now. <laughs> I, I think that's a that's a fair characterization. Um, a, a few more. You, you've been great with your time, and I, I don't want to keep you for too long. But you, you one is um, you mentioned David Falk. Now, obviously, this is 13 years ago. Um, but I read something you uh, said after the piece came out, which is that you thought that that was the best interview you ever did. It lasted two hours. It, can you just share like a memory or two from what from what that interview with David Falk was like? Oh, it was amazing. So, okay. So I I should preface this by saying at 28 years old, you know, and working in the research department at GQ, I was so poor. (laughs) I mean, I was, I was so poor. I lived in my, my now wife, but girlfriend then we lived in Williamsburg. And I remember one night needing to go to a Knicks game and knowing that I didn't have any money on my Metro card to get the subway. And I couldn't even scrape together enough change for a round trip on the subway to go to the game. Oh my so goodness. Like I, like I was like hanging at that level of like paycheck to paycheck journalistic poverty. And so I drive down to DC to meet with David Falk. I had this banged up uh, Chevy Cavalier that I drove down. With <laughs> That's classic. That, my, that we bought for my, my wife's girlfriend. And I get into David Falk's office and he's on the phone with Patrick Ewing. Oh, of course. And you know, like, they, they show me in and it was like fame basketball and um, they show me in and he's on the phone with, he says, Patrick, Pat, he's saying, Patrick, 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 are you going to New York? And I think it was uh, the Cavs are going to play the Knicks or somebody was playing the Knicks in New York and it was a, a big deal. And Patrick was going to go to the game and he says, Oh, Michael's on the other line. Hold on. <laughs> Michael, I've got Patrick on the other line. We're going to stay at the four seasons. Where are you going to stay? Or are you going to be at the four seasons too? Hold on. I got to get back to Patrick. Hey, Patrick, you know, and he's talking to Patrick and then he clicks back over to Jordan and he says, Jordan, are you going to take the Ferrari? Are you going to take the Ferrari? To, you know, are you, are you going to drive in the Ferrari? And, and then he hangs up the phone and he says, what kind of car did you drive? I love cars. Says, oh, I, I drove my, my Chevy Cavalier down here. And I said, I, I don't have a Ferrari. And he says, well, you should get one. That's a real car. Um, he was, you know, like he was, uh, he, he was definitely like, I mean, at a, at a point in time, like David Falk was like, you want to talk about like the most powerful guy in basketball. I was about he to was, say, like, the most yeah. Guy in basketball, yeah. You know, and it was just after that. And, you know, he thought that, you know, like the, the, you know, he thought that the interview was about like him and his sort of like career comeback. I don't know, you know, like how he got that impression. Um, yeah, I saw that. That didn't, was, I, that didn't make any sense to me. I, I mean, I don't know, who knows what was relayed to him when it was set up? That's interesting. Yeah. And I, I just remember it was sort of like a combination of like getting him, maybe getting him on a day when he was feeling talkative and, um, but also him being kind of like taken aback by the subject matter. Okay. You know, like I think certainly he felt like, he was, you know, he had been bigger than Wes and I think David Falk had been bigger than everybody. Um, so yeah, it just, and he just, he was, he was great. You know, the, the whole thing was on the record and yeah, long time ago. I remember, <laughs> I also remember lock that I had, uh, did I lock my keys in my car in my Chevy Cavalier? I, yeah. I, I oh, would have broken the window yeah. if it were me. I, I'd be honest. No, no, I, well, no, I, I remember, but like in DC and I had to drive back to New York and I locked, and I locked my keys in my car and had to, had to have, because I was so poor, had to have my sort of my best friend call the tow, tow truck company for me to come and like Jimmy, my car open. And on the way home, I was, I was, I like, I basically like ran out of gas Oh my God. on, uh, on the New Jersey turnpike and drove back to Brooklyn, like over all of the bridges with my flashers on going like 30 miles an hour. Did, did you um, have to ask to use David Fox phone or did you have a cell phone at this point? 
I had a cell. I okay. had a cell phone that probably barely had any charge. Because I was about to say, <laughs> if you had to use David Falk's phone after he got off the phone with Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing to call your friend to call a tow, that would have been. Um, I would want the oral history on that. Actually, that would be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> um, all right, just I, again, you've been great. This has been amazing. Um, one more because you you did. It's funny you didn't mention it in the piece, but in the interview you did after you you did say that you got ultimately a forty five minute sit down with Wes at his home, um, and that in conversations with your editor, I, I you know you decided to not. Um, include any of that in the piece. Be, for, well, you could say why, um, but I'm just curious after, cause you, again, you had done all this homework on him before, you know, or the, the way you make it sound is before you tried to reach out to him. So what was that like finally, you know, meeting him and, and, or I know you had met him before, but finally getting to sit down and actually have a conversation and uh, yeah, just what, <laughs> I know it's all off the record or most of it's off the record, but what can you share from, from that experience? So, so the, the way that I reported that story was sort of like a Woodward and Bernstein kind of, kind of strategy where you start in the outermost rungs, the people who, the people who, you know, aren't going to reach out to West or to the subject and, and tell them that you're reporting. And then you just sort of slowly work your way in closer to him until you're in the center. And you know, probably as much about the subject as you're going to. Right. And you, it's just, it's just a better, I think reporting wise, it's just, it's just a better way to do it. Right. You just, it, you, you know, you, you wait until it requires patience, but it just, you, you wait until, you wait until you're ready to talk to the subject of your investigation and you don't do it until then. Um, and yeah, so I went to, I went to, I spent like, I think it was, uh, nine days in Detroit, like right after Christmas during a Pistons home game and, um, reached out to this old investigative journalist from, uh, the Detroit news named Fred Gerard, who had been the investigative journalist who broke the fab five, Ah, okay. Story. And I told them what I was the Fab Five uh, scandal at, at Michigan, and I told him uh, what I was up to. And he was supposed to have lunch with Wes like a year or two before, and Wes didn't show up. Huh, um, okay. And so you know, like Fred wanted to go to his house, so we ended up like knocking on his door, and a lot of that, yeah, a lot of that conversation was off the record. But you know, like. West is a West has a certain gravity to his presence. He's tall. He's got an enormous deep voice. <laughs> uh, you know, like, yeah, like I was nervous, you know, he was like, you know, I'd been sort of like talking to a lot of people about him. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I can't say much about that conversation. Even now it was off the record, but I, I will tell you after the story. So the story came out in July of 07 and I was getting married in September and I was in Las Vegas with some friends and we were staying at the wind and I get into my room at the wind and the, the, the phone call, the phone rings. And I, you know, I said, hello. And all I hear on the other side is room 25, 28 and half an hour, come alone. <laughs> and so I go to, and I knew who it was. So, you know, like I go to room 25, 28 in half an hour alone uh, and there's Wes, like in his socks, like sitting on the bed. Uh, and it was the, who's the corrupt NBA ref, Tim, uh, Tim Donahue. Yeah. yeah. The Tim Donahue thing was just happening. And I spent like an hour with Wes, like in our socks, you know, like hanging out next to each other on the, you know, on the, the full size beds on either side of the room, just like talking and getting to know him. Um, And we've had, you know, like over the years, like, you know, drinks in New York or like, you know, the occasional remember when that uh, was like the Jay-Z song came out about like worldwide West, every, everywhere we go, make, we make a worldwide, we make a worldwide mess. Yep. Like when that came out, like for that day, like the, the worldwide West story was like the most Googled story like (laughs) or the most Googled thing on the internet. And he like called me to say, Hey, you know, like all these years later, you know, we're still like tied together. So, like, yeah, I mean, like, over the years, I've, I've gotten to know him. Um, 
and a little bit and yeah, he's just, I mean, I think he's the, I, I, I really think he's got to be one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. He's just really unique. I mean, his story is, I mean, I don't know. Someday I hope he writes the book and I hope to be the one that gets to write it. You know, I mean, I'm sure he'll pick, I'm sure he'll pick Will Bond or, you know, somebody super famous. Uh, but, you know, or, you know, even Henry Abbott um, would be so great. But, uh, you know, I mean, I would just, I would love to know. I would love to know all of it. I mean, I'm sure the things that he's seen and could tell you would make the little hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Well, look, um, all due respect to Wilbon and Abbott and anyone else, um, the story that you wrote, um, I mean, I, I actually downplayed it by saying at the top of the episode that it was the it's the definitive piece on World Wide West. It is it is honestly as good a profile about someone as you're ever going to read. Um, and it is, oh, it's fascinating. And the fact that I actually, you know, I was about to say the fact that you didn't, didn't really have him for the story other than that off the record time makes it all the more impressive. But I almost wonder if it would have turned out as well, if you did get him on the record. And I, that's, I guess something to, to wonder about because it was, it was perfect. And and the way you wrote it was perfect. Uh, not that you had a choice, but it was, it was great. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. We'd have to sort of like sit down and do like the the calculations of like if I were to do it now, where would I start and how would I do it differently? Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, it was, you know, I just, I just, I just called everybody. You know, like I just, I called everybody. Um, do you remember Eddie Lau? Eddie Lau, the name rings a bell. I, for the life of so me, Eddie, I, Eddie Lau was a was a runner for Donald Fagan. Remember that Donald Fagan was a. I'm not sure if he's still in business, but he was an agent. Okay, yeah, he's some big players. But but Eddie Lau was this this runner that he that he had, and I remember and like that like Eddie Lau was a sort of like a name of interest to a lot of basketball writers then because you know, like pretty similar to, I mean, he was like minor league Wes um, <laughs> and, you know, like was a person who had like good relationships sort of all over the place. Maybe, you know, like not to the same extent, but he was also still like pretty quiet, pretty, pretty, uh, you know, was not a person who was seeking the limelight. And I found out that Eddie Lau played basketball at um, a, particular health club in Chicago and his relationship with Donald Sagan was something that was rumored, but nobody had like confirmed. Um, and I, so what I did was I called the, I called the health club and left a message for Eddie Lau and Donald and Donald Sagan called me back. Well, you know what I mean? So it was just like a lot of that sort of stuff, you know, like a lot of, like when you just, you you know, like as a reporter, when you pick up the phone and you just start calling people, like something's going to happen, you know, yeah. like something, something always shakes loose. Well, look, the fa- I mean, and the fact that it was your first national story, um, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I can't, I can't speak about it enough. I mean, you, you know how good oh, it is. Sure. And, and, and for anybody listening, I mean, I know, you know, Alex, you're not at GQ anymore, but if, if you haven't read the story, you should really go read the story. And, um. Uh, b- by the way, impressive that you could remember the Vegas room number. I don't know, were you making that number up off the top of your head, or do you actually remember the room no, no, number? No, no, June 25, Wow. I do remember it. Yeah, I mean, it was like... That's more impressive than yeah. the story. <laughs> yeah, um, he was... Uh, yeah, it was like one of the coolest things ever. I mean, it was like, I remember... I don't, you know, I mean, that was story was like, USA Basketball was staying in the wind, and like, I would be on the elevator, and... I remember I was, so I was in the elevator, USA basketball was there. And there were like two guys that were like with, you know, like with, with basketball somehow, like, I'm not sure who they were or what role they played. But I remember like one of the guys talking about how he needed, how you need to, how you need to structure your business like worldwide West. And it was like, he was basically like reciting copy from my story, <laughs> you know, but and, and repurposing it as his own. And it was like, then I was like, oh, like, 
that's interesting. You know, like pe- people noticed the story. It was, yeah. I mean, it was definitely, like I said, like definitely like things going viral back then it involved like copy machines and like telephone conversation. You know, it wasn't, it was pre, it was pre Twitter. The world was a different place. Um, for sure. And, and people are still referencing the story because no one's been able to write, um, anything really coherent about West since then you were, you were, you remain the only one who was able to, uh, to pull this off. Um, I, uh, am, I was a fan of yours before I asked you to come on this podcast. Um, I, I still am. If you, um, if you're interested in, in just good quality work, um, go read anything Alex French does. Alex, uh, seriously, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to relive the process of writing this piece, relive the piece itself, um, it was, uh, it was great to talk to you and, uh, you know, uh, who, who knows, maybe, uh, maybe a Nick game that I'm covering if we ever get back into, um, you know, the, the old way of things, um, uh, maybe I'll run into you in the, in the hallway. Although I guess you, you won't have to wait for Wes anymore. You'll, you'll be maybe in just one of the seats or something like that. So, so the best thing that ever happened to me in the, in the hallway at, at a Knicks game was I'm standing, I'm standing in the tunnel and I'm standing next to these really two, two just really beautiful women. And all of a sudden I feel these massive hands on my shoulders. And all of a sudden, like my feet literally moved, like, were, like left the ground and I was picked up and moved aside <laughs> by somebody gigantic behind me. And I turn around and it's Patrick Ewing. <laughs> and he says to these two, and he says to, me, to these two women, ladies, I'd like you to meet my friend Alonzo. It was freaking Alonzo morning. Like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that yeah. is that, that just made my day. Thank you for sharing. That. <laughs> In any case. Yeah. I don't know. Like just, I mean, so many, I mean, this is bringing up, so like I was getting married around the time that I, that I worked in that story and I asked, um, Oh God, what's his name? Uh, the Nick's color announcer. Um, Oh, Mike Breen or Marv Albert. No, or no, no, Clyde no, no, no. Uh, Yeah, Walt Clyde Frazier. Yeah. We were in an elevator together. Yeah, and I was like, "I'm getting married. Would you officiate?" And he gave it. He was like, he gave it like a good couple minutes thought and then declined. <laughs> I mean, that would have been amazing to have Walt Clyde Frazier initiate. I mean, he's got to be. You know, he he's got to have like some kind of deaconship someplace where he can do that. Like, I'm sure he's probably officiated weddings before. I'm still afraid to speak to him. I've seen him in the press room a couple of times and I just, it's, it's like a, a, a saint or some kind of religious figure. I just, I can't bring myself to, uh, he was so lovely. I mean, he was, Oh, he seems like, like he a great nice guy. I just, people. yeah. Again, Alex, this was really great. Um, I really can't thank you enough for your time and, um, yeah, man, all the, all the best really. Thank you once again. Of course. Let me know if you ever need anything. All right, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Take care.